So as Nicole said, we're in the book of Jonah. We're going to be in this book for four weeks. Uh, we're taking a break from our uh, series in the book of Isaiah where Pastor Jeff is on vacation. And so here's my big main idea for the book. Uh, here it is. God is not a reluctant missionary. That God is not a reluctant missionary. If you're familiar with the story of Jonah, you know that, in fact, we just read that Jonah is, in fact, a reluctant missionary. That God has given him a clear, serious, and real call and direction for his life, and Jonah is headed in the opposite direction. But ultimately, the book of Jonah is really not about Jonah. It's really about God. And the, the, the reality that God's grace is our only way to him. That our, our rescue from Satan and from sin and death and brokenness is, is not a matter of our own strength or talent or charisma or energy, but rather it is an all a complete work of God because God is not a reluctant missionary, but rather he willingly goes on mission to rescue people to himself. Oz Guinness, the Christian author, describes it this way when he says, we cannot find God without God. We cannot reach God without God. We cannot satisfy God without God, which is another way of saying that all our seeking will fall short unless God starts and finishes the search. The decisive part of our seeking is not our human search for God, but his humble descent to us. Without God's descent, there is no human ascent. The secret of the quest lies not in our brilliance, or I would add our strength or effort or talent, but rather in his grace alone. We're going to see that in Jonah's life. We're going to see that in the land of Nineveh. We're going to see that in the land of the sailors today. Let me give you some background on the book of Jonah. Uh, the, the genre of the book is that it's a narrative. It's a book that tells a story. It unfolds the events of Jonah's life during a particular time. So if, if someone were going to write a book about your life, they might take and write from beginning to end, birth to death. They might include marriage, kids, legacy, job, where you lived, how you moved, where you went to school, all of that stuff. Or they might just focus in on a, on a particular period of your life, maybe just your high school years. Wouldn't that be awful? Um, that's what Jonah does. It, it's not an entirety collection of the whole life of Jonah. It's rather just a, a set time period of Jonah's life that, that God has preserved in scripture for it. And it's going rather than some of the other prophetic books, it, it's not really concerned with Jonah's message. In fact, we're only going to get like one sentence, but it's rather concerned with the events around his life. The length of the book is short. As I mentioned earlier, it's only four chapter, uh, four chapters in the place of scripture. It's among what we call the minor prophets. And when you hear the word minor, don't think of like minor leagues, but rather shorter. It's a shorter, it's part of the shorter collection. We've got some prophets where we've got a lot of their text and a lot of their message, like Isaiah, for example, which we've been in for like 30 weeks, I think, something crazy, and we're, we're almost halfway. Uh, but it's, it's among the minor prophets. That means we have a, a shorter collection of writings. Its purpose is to reveal the character of God. For God will be the main character in the narrative, in the story. We're going to see God's interaction with Jonah. We're going to see God's interaction with creation. We're going to see God's interaction with the city of Nineveh. And it has much to teach us about who God is rather than who Jonah is. So we are going to talk about that for this week. Our context is Jonah. Now, Jonah's a prophet. That's his office. That's his position that he holds within the communion of God's people. And you remember from Isaiah, a prophet is someone who speaks God's truth to God's people with God's authority. That's who Jonah is. That's his job. He's got one job, one job only, to speak God's truth 
to God's people with God's authority. In fact, Jonah is a rather uh, successful prophet. He's served God previously and received blessing and success as a result of it. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, we read this. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. Jeroboam, the king at the time, whom Jonah spoke the word of the Lord to, accomplished the mission of God when he rebuilt the wall around Israel. And so Jonah brought a word of the Lord to the king, the king followed it, and God blessed it. And so at this point in his life, Jonah, if you will, is a made man. When he walks around, people go, hey, that's Jonah. When he told King Jeroboam to build the border, the king did it, and God blessed us, and things went really, really well. That is Jonah. He is the man. Where we pick up here in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 is now the word of the Lord is going to return to Jonah. God's got another mission, another message, another time which Jonah, as a prophet, is supposed to speak God's truth with God's authority to God's people. You guys ready? Let's begin. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. That's just the introduction. Isn't this exciting? Here we go. Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Jonah's going to receive a new call from God. As I said earlier, Jonah's reputation among the nation and kingdom of Israel is secure. He's a made man. His previous message to the king was successful. And so now God's going to bring another message through Jonah to his people. We must understand when we read a phrase like the word of the Lord came to Jonah, this is a supernatural imparting of knowledge and wisdom from God to his prophet. That Jonah is being invited into the presence of God by the word of God to see things from God's perspective. That Jonah is being invited into the presence of God by the word of God in order to see the world from God's perspective. When you become a Christian and you begin to enter into the scriptures and they begin to kind of soak into your soul, that's what happens. When we open our Bibles, we we stood up, we prayed. Why? Because we believe that we're entering into the presence of God together. We're marking this moment. And that as we read God's word, we're going to be in his presence together. And we're going to see our lives and the world from his perspective. That's what Jonah's experiencing right here in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The first message that Jonah received was a message of blessing. Hey, king, God's got a message for us. We are to reestablish our border wall so that we can have provision and protection. The second message, however, is much different. This is not a message of blessing for protection and provision. No, no. This is a message of repentance that we're told is to be preached to a people in the city of Nineveh. And the reason they're supposed to hear this message of repentance or to be called out against is because they have committed great evil, so much so that God can't help but pay attention to what they're doing. Now, you need to understand a little bit about Nineveh to understand exactly what Jonah's being told to do. Nineveh today would be situated in what is now northern Iraq. And at this point in history, Nineveh was one of the capital cities of the Assyrian Empire. And if you've been with us through Isaiah, you know the Assyrians are bad people. They're people that God has used to discipline his own people. And so they are conquerors, they are warriors. And get this, Nineveh was a trophy city 
for the Assyrian Empire. So it wasn't just one of the capitals where they did political business and, and, and were merchants. No, no. This was a trophy city. Well, what's a trophy city? It's kind of the same thing like a trophy spouse or a trophy boyfriend or girlfriend, right? You know, when you start dating that person that's way more attractive to you, happened to me, or should I say happened to Sherry? No, it's, it happened to me. It happened to me. What do you do? What? You want to parade that person around. You're like, look, who, look, she said yes. Isn't that incredible? I can't believe it. And you want to parade them around, let everybody know what you were able to do. That was Nineveh for the Assyrian Empire. It was their trophy city. When they conquered or, or demolished a city, when they were to remove people and treasure, guess where it got shipped off to? To Nineveh. It was a living museum to the power and terror of the Assyrian Empire. It gave testimony to their victories and to their subjugation or enslavement of other nations. This is where Jonah's called to go. It had a large, wicked population. The Syrians worshipped several idols, including Nabu, who was god of writing and art, so creativity and sciences, and then Ishtar, the goddess of love and war. And so what did they like? They liked violence. They liked artwork. They liked sciences. And this is where they found their faith and their religion. Does that sound familiar at all? Culturally, perhaps. This is where Jonah's going. Additionally, it's an enemy empire. It is a declared enemy of the nation of Israel. They have declared themselves not in friendship or companionship with God's people, but rather they've declared themselves to be an enemy. So you've got Luke being sent to the Death Star right here in Jonah 1. That's what's going on. And what's his message? God loves you and wants to welcome you in his kingdom. No, no, no. God recognizes the evil that you're committing and is going to destroy you. That's Jonah's message. He's to call out against the city. One man in a trophy city of the Assyrian Empire. See, God's call to Jonah is clear, right? There's no confusion. It's very clear. What are you supposed to do? Jonah, you're supposed to go to Nineveh, the great city, and you are to preach against its wickedness. It's very real. He's to call out against the city. He's going to go and preach repentance among the enemies of God's people. And it's also serious. Nineveh's evil has come up before the Lord. Their sin and disobedience has grown to the point where God cannot stand it. And so Jonah's to go and to preach a clear, real, and serious message. Jonah's invited by God to this dangerous, crazy, out-of-his-comfort-zone mission. What will you do when God's request comes to you? When he invites you into his presence by his word to see things from his perspective? Because that's what he's inviting Jonah to do. Jonah, I need you to take your eyes off your own life and your own perspective. I need you to look up and see things the way I see them. Trust me in faith and go and do this thing. When God gives us as his people a clear, real, and serious call, he too is inviting us by his word to see things from his perspective and to walk in faith. Because let's all be honest. It's fun to look at Jonah's life and go, man, look how he just blatantly disobeyed God, which we're going to see here in just a minute. When in the same matter, don't we often do the same thing? Maybe the stakes aren't as large. Maybe the danger isn't as real, at least as we perceive it. 
But what will we do when God gives us a crazy, dangerous, out of our comfort zone mission? Let's see what Jonah does together. Verse 3, but Jonah, we know things are bad. We know things are bad right here, right? But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now, what you need to know about Tarshish is geographically, Tarshish is 180 degrees in the opposite direction of Nineveh. So Jonah's supposed to be on the road to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Jonah says, nope, I'm going to head in the complete opposite direction. He's trying to run from the presence of the Lord, verse 3 tells us. He went down to Joppa. Underline that word down or highlight it. Particularly, I like it in the ESV. Watch as that word down continues Jonah all the way uh, toward the end of the chapter. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. The other thing the author of Jonah does is he likes to emphasize and repeat things for our sake as readers. We read that Jonah, where's Jonah going? Down. Down. Where to what city? Tarshish. We know that because it's repeated through here, right? He's fleeing to Tarshish. He finds a ship going to Tarshish. So he went down into the boat to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah seeks in Tarshish to escape the burdens of God's mission that he has been called to. Tarshish for Jonah becomes this blissful imagined paradise where he can be free of the burden and responsibilities when in truth, flight from God only leads to one direction. What direction is it? Down. Down. Jonah has insisted in this moment when he says, God, I know what you want me to do, but I know better. He chooses what we humans might ultimately have chosen since the first sin in Genesis 3, that we know better than God. That we know how to determine our life and our course of action for ourselves better than he does. And ultimately, when we sin, that's what we're doing. We've stopped believing in God's goodness. We have shifted from believing that God's way is best and instead consider ourselves as Jonah did, wiser and more skillful at navigating our life than God. And that's what Jonah's doing. And it's what we do when we choose to sin, when we choose to neglect the call of God upon our lives or the the call of God in our actions. Verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. God causes a great storm upon the sea so that the ship that that has this runaway prophet on it is on the verge of coming apart. The storm tells us, God's action tells us that God will spare no expense in pursuit of those who run from him. Jonah charts a course of action in a direction trying to flee the presence of God. Once again, how foolish is that? Right? I mean, let's talk about it. God is the ultimate champion of hide and go seek, isn't he? I'm like, there's just nowhere, nowhere you can go out of his presence and out of his sight. And yet Jonah's going to attempt this thing. But God wins, knows exactly where Jonah's at, and takes dramatic, supernatural action. That's what I want to see here. Again, who's the main character of the story? God is. So we see God's call to Jonah, Jonah's disobedience to God, and then God intervenes with what? A great storm. Look at verse 4. A great wind upon the sea. God puts a roadblock in front of Jonah's direction in order to turn him around. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Anybody live that season of your life where you tried to head away from God only for life to get much more difficult and much harder? 
until he finally got your attention. God uses this storm to get Jonah's attention. God intervenes. We, we got to see that this storm is an act of mercy from God. It's not punishment. It is discipline. Jonah, you're headed in the wrong way, and so I'm going to make it hard for you to get where you think you need to get going. God is using this storm in the midst of Jonah's circumstances not to punish him, but rather to discipline him because he loves him. It's an act of mercy. If God hated Jonah, he would just let the storm tear apart the ship and let Jonah's life end. But that's not what God's doing. He's sending the storm, the difficult circumstances, to get Jonah's attention so that he might be back on track. The storm ultimately is sent by God to save Jonah from Jonah. Jonah thought running from God would make him free, but would only lead to a slavery, to a life built on self-reliance and self-dependence far from God. God uses the real life events in and around our life to get our attention. Let me be clear. You cannot outrun God this morning. God does in Jonah's life what ultimately he intends to do in the city of Nineveh, to break in and redirect their course. I might suggest that if God is using something difficult, tragic, hard, and I know he is, in and around your life, he's doing it to get your attention. He's doing it to call you into a deeper reliance upon him. Verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo ship that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. This verse alone should tell us how dangerous the storm and the circumstances is. What do sailors do for a living? No trick questions. They sail. That's right. They, that's all they do. There's no trick questions. I won't try to fool you, I promise. Sailors sail. This storm is so bad that these professional merchant sailors are freaking out. And oh, by the way, how do merchant sailors make their money? Again, no trick questions. The merchandise. They take it from point A to point B. This too should tell us how bad the storm is. Why? Not only are these professional merchant sailors freaking out, but what are they throwing overboard according to verse 5? The cargo. The, I mean, that's cash money for them. And they're dumping it into the sea because they are afraid that if they do not, this storm is going to break. This is a severe storm and they are freaking out. They're abandoning their resources. They're starting to pray to any God who will listen. Where do we find Jonah, verse 5? But Jonah had gone where? Down. There's that word again. Down into the inner part of the ship and laying what? Down and was fast asleep. Joni, uh, Joni, Jonah's. <laughs> the Bible written in the 80s. That's who this would be. It would be Joni. Jonah's journey, those are the two words that came together, continues to go downward. He went down to Joppa to find a boat to go down to Tarshish, and now he finds himself down in the inner part of the boat, away from everyone else, and he just falls asleep. I wonder if he doesn't try to sleep in order to escape his thoughts and to escape the pestering of God. I mean, is he exhausted from the journey? 
Is it physical exhaustion or, or is there something more? Is there a kind of a spiritual, emotional, and, and mental exhaustion from running for God? And so sleep becomes his only sanctuary. So as the middle of this storm is going on around them, as the, the sailors, the professional sailors are freaking out and losing their minds and throwing the cargo overboard, he finds himself fast asleep. He wanted to be unconscious to God and to what was going on around him. He wants to be numb. Verse 6, so the captain came and said to Jonah, what do you mean, you sleeper? Get out of bed. First day of school, parents, like that's, you know this phrase. What are you doing? Get out of bed, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God that you worship will give a thought to us that we may not perish. What's the captain's please? Like, Jonah, you got to wake up, man. We, we're, we're all about to be destroyed. You need to get up. You need to start praying to whatever God you worship do and hope that maybe, perhaps, he will hear us and we'll be rescued. You know things are bad, right? When the non-religious people are starting to turn to you for prayer in your life, right? Have you ever had that, right? Where someone's made it clear at your workplace, listen, I, Christianity is good for you. It's not who I am. But when they begin to suffer things and they start asking you to pray for them, that's what's going on here. Verse 7, and they said to one another, so the merchant sailors are going to get together, they're going to try to figure this thing out. They said to, to one another, come, let us cast lots. Think of drawing straws or rolling dice. Cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Okay, so a little, little superstitious, little spirituality here. We're going to roll dice and we're going to draw straws. We're going to figure out whose fault this is. So they cast lots and guess what? The lot fell on Who? On Jonah. Again, not an accident. God intervening. Verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Obviously, this is before social media, right? Before you could just go spy on somebody. Verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Listen to this. Jonah answers all but one question, doesn't he? The one question he doesn't answer is his occupation. He doesn't tell him that he's a prophet. Just tell him that he's a, pre that he's a Hebrew, that he fears the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them at some point along his journey, maybe when he was buying passage at the beginning or before he goes down to take that supernatural nap, whatever he's doing, Jonah had communicated that he was running from God. Verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Think of the storm just continues to rage and the boat continues to rock and, and creak and the cargo is overloaded now. They've said all their prayers that they can pray. The ones they remembered from being a kid that grandma taught them. They're, they're out of options and so they want to know what they have to do to Jonah in order to get this big storm to stop. Verse 12, Jonah said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. I want you to see that, that Jonas probably got an altered sense of God and his mercy in this moment. 
Because remember, Jonah doesn't know what's going to happen in chapter 2, 3, and 4. Only we have the privilege of that. At this point, think about Jonah. He's run from God. His only sanctuary of sleep has been taken from him. He realized that the storm is an act of God who created, oh, by the way, the sea and the land. And so his answer is, obviously, God wants me dead. So throw me into the ocean, throw me into the sea, and you guys will be rescued. Jonah's at a very down, dark place, isn't he? He sees his only recourse is to take his life. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Again, notice God's hand, right? God is not letting them out of this. So it's like, whoa, 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 buddy. We were, that's not what we wanted. We, we were not acting to, to commit an act of murder here. That's not what we were looking for. We just want to know what we need to do to get out of this thing. What prayer do we need to pray? What act of religious service? Jonah's like, oh, just kick me overboard. Mm, yeah, I didn't sign on for murder. No, that's not what, not what I was looking for as a career. So the men, they get back to their own resources. They grab the oars. Like, All right, guys, let's do it. We're going to row hard. We're going to try to get back to land, but God will not have it. He sends the wind stronger, the storm greater. Verse 14. Check this out. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. What just happened? These pagan, worshiping, merchant sailors are now praying to Jonah's God. Here's their prayer. Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. What are they acknowledging? God's control over their circumstances and life. This is an incredible change of heart and spirit. That even these merchant sailors who were just planning a, a cargo trip over to Tarshish to make some money and then come back are now having their souls intervened with through Jonah's disobedience. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, amen? At any point in time in your life, God can break in and reach the other people around you, amen? Even like Jonah when you're acting dumb. God will still have his way. They acknowledge God's power and providence over the creation around them, and they begin to pray to him for rescue and forgiveness because they're about to toss our boy overboard. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The words of Jonah ring true. If you throw me into the sea, it will calm for you. The men pray, and what does God do? He answers their prayer. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is bananas. These guys started out on a trip as pagan worshipers of false gods. By the end of this short journey with Jonah, they're fearing God, acknowledging his power over their life, and offering sacrifices to him. God's mercy is great. He is not a reluctant missionary. He is willing to save and rescue his people wherever he may find them. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days 
and three nights. Again, we see God's supernatural interaction with creation. God appoints. What does that mean? It means God moved that great big fish to come up and rescue Jonah from drowning. Now, let's do, get, do away with something that we've just kind of culturally come to accept. Everybody says Jonah was swallowed by a big whale. whale. What does the Bible actually say? Fish. It's the importance of getting into the text to know what it says. We assume whale. The cartoons teach us whale. Our Bible comic books with coloring strips in them teach us as well. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's just a great big fish. So what kind of fish was it? A great big fish. I don't know. Just a great big one. Could be anything. All we know is that it's supernaturally appointed by God. God is intervening supernaturally in Jonah's life according to his current circumstances. Could God swallow you up with a big fish today? I don't know. Are you headed to Tarshish? Whatever the point is, God will use supernatural means to intervene in our life to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And if you just ask around the room today when you're getting coffee, just listen. What has God done supernaturally in your life when you were praying? And just listen. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Everything from miracle healings to providential circumstances, God just chooses to intervene supernaturally into the lives of people. And that's all he's doing. He just happens to be using a big fish with Jonah. And Jonah is going to spend how long in this fish? Three days days and three nights. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Anybody else spend three days and three nights anywhere? I'm not talking about on vacation. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? And one of our great convictions here at Generations is that this book that we open, the Bible, this library, this collection of books, 66, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, is really all about one person that it's all about connecting us to God's story of redemption through that one person. His name is Jesus. I don't have to reach hard to make the connection between Jesus and Jonah. Why? Because Jesus actually does it himself. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 41, listen to this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees, these are the religious leaders of Jesus' day, answered Jesus saying, teacher, We wish to see a sign from you. At this point, Jesus has been teaching, he's been performing miracles, and he's he's gathered a a, a group of people who are following him, kind of, Jesus is making himself known. So the religious leaders come to say, hey, teacher, uh, do a trick for us. Be like a little monkey and slap some symbols together. We want to see what you got. Prove to us you are who you've been teaching and say that you are. Verse 39, listen to this. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Here's verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So I want you to see how miraculous God is. Hundreds of years before Jesus shows up, Jonah goes through this whole episode. Jonah's like, I'm on my own ticket. I'm going to run from God. God's like, oh, watch this. I'm going to use your circumstances to foreshadow what I'm going to do with my son. Jonah, there's going to be someone who is truer and better than you. His name will be Jesus. 
And he too will come to a people who have committed evil in my sight. He too will preach a message of repentance. And he too will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the grave. But he too, Jonah, will be resurrected, will be brought outward. But not just for the conversion of one city at one time, but for the conversion of all God's people from all time. Jesus is the true and better Jonah. <clears throat> I got two takeaways for you, maybe. <laughs> <clears throat> it's like that first day back at the gym, and you're like all super sore, you're like, man, I'm out of shape. My voice is out of preaching shape. Here we go. Number one, our first takeaway. God is not a reluctant missionary, but use whatever means necessary to save his own people. So you got to know right now that if you came to this place seeking the grace of God, he is not reluctant to rescue you. He has brought you here on purpose at this moment with these other people, with this message in mind, because he wants to reach you. He wants to save you. He wants to rescue you through Jesus Christ. Number two, our call from God is just as clear just as real and just as serious as Jonas. That God's primary means of mission, God's primary means of getting his mission and message outward is us. And that we have been given a real, clear, and serious call, like Jonah, to reach people who are not in relationship with God yet. And the message we've been given is that Jesus spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, endured the crucifixion, and was raised from the dead to forgive us of our sins and to bring us home. To respond to the call of God today, there are two things you must believe and one thing you must do. Number one, you must believe that like the sailors on the ship, you lack the ability to save yourself. As hard as you row in the opposite direction, God will not let you get away. That your sin has affected your relationship with God. It separated you and left you spiritually dead. If you're ready to believe that first thing, then you can believe the second thing. That you must also believe with faith like the sailors did. That salvation and your rescue lies in the death of another. This person is Jesus Christ. Like Jonah, Jesus willingly traded his life for yours. And through the cross and his resurrection, he guarantees you eternal life. If you're ready to believe these two things, the last thing you must do, you must commit yourself to him. The Bible speaks of this in different ways, but it is clear it involves an act of our will to say yes and believe in Jesus and to place ourselves in his hands, trusting him always and forever. If you are ready to receive, to believe these two things, and to do this one thing, we will welcome you into the family of God today as a Christian. Let me pray for us, church. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the million and one ways you minister to us through it. God, thank you for Jonah. Thank you for the ways, God, we can see ourselves in him. Timid and fearful, letting our circumstances frighten us into disobedience. And yet, God, thank you that you, like Jonah, do not leave us in that. But will choose to rescue us that you will intervene supernaturally in our lives to call us, to get our attention, to bring us home. 
And so God, for those of us in this room who are headed in the wrong direction, would you get our attention? And God, would we abandon the ways that we've disobeyed you and tried to walk away? And would you bring us home? As we worship you now, God, would you be glorified in our midst? As we give our offerings, as we receive communion, as we lift our voices to you, God, we pray that you would be glorified, that your name would be lifted up, that you would empower us to be people on mission, to deliver a real, clear, serious message to the people of Cerritos and the surrounding cities, God, of the message of hope that is Jesus. Father, we pray all these things through Christ our Savior. Amen.